0: If central currency can be thought of as the operating system of our economy, corporations are the software that runs on top of it. They are the true natives of capitalism, which is why they are so much more at home in this environment than we humans. In perhaps the most spectacular reversal of figure and ground we've yet witnessed, corporations have been winning court cases that give them the rights of human beings from parenthood and property to free speech and religious convictions, while human beings now strive to brand themselves in the style of corporations. But corporations are not people. They're abstract and can scale up infinitely to meet the demands of debt-based economy. People can only work so hard to consume so much before they reach their limits. We are still part of the organic world and subject to the laws of nature. Corporations know no such bounds making them an awful lot like the digital technologies they are developing and inhabiting. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, February 5th, 2019, and the State of the Union today is hopeful because we're playing for Team Human. And so for 42 minutes, we're going to consider Team Human with its coach, Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, the latest work by Douglas Rushkoff, reveals how major systems operate under anti-human dynamics to thwart social contract. Our very humanity, is being worn down by technologies, markets, and the media we've created. Money, he explains, is not only a means of exchange, but also one of exploitation. Education has been an extension of occupational training, and social media is undermining our democracy. Team Human reveals the dynamics of this anti-human machinery and invites us to remake remake these aspects of society in ways that foster our humanity. Organized in 100 aphoristic statements, Team Human makes the case for why civilization seems to be on the brink of disaster and why it doesn't have to be this way. Elevating human teamwork and connection, Rushkoff exposes the anti-human agenda embedded in our technologies markets and institutions to call attention to the isolating and repressive forces that are holding us back. Douglas Rushkoff is the best-selling author of Program or Be Programmed and 14 other books. He serves as a professor of media theory at CUNY Queens and is the host of the team Human Podcast. We last visited with him on election day. I don't even remember what year that was, but we will link to that episode for sure. How are you doing this morning, Douglas?
1: Okay, I'm better than on election day, I guess. <laughs> or was that before? Was that before we knew the outcome?
0: We didn't know the outcome. And it's oh. so interesting because I think we b- we both kind of had a sense of where the world was headed and we weren't happy with that direction, but we kind of thought that this is just the way things were.
1: Yeah, I guess we were I I guess what I was doing was bracing for further entrenchment of neoliberalism, you know, in the whole sort of Clinton foundation globalist world and wondering whether or not things like climate change were going to be addressed adequately. By you know, giant international uh, uh, you know organizations, and you know whether there would be enough kind of grassroots, local, city-based, and town-based uh, activity as as the you know kind of the federal and and you know global uh, global you know World Bank kind of uh, uh, institutions gained power. more power but then we got this you know (laughs) totally other uh totally other outcome we sure did i
0: i i recall too your immediate response was you wanted to treat it as hopefully as possible kind of saying all right so if if we know what what clinton like the clinton foundation that whole kind of maintaining the order of the state was then you know perhaps there was a there was some kind of you know i think the first thing you s- said was you know the clintons never asked anyone to participate and here it is trump is asking for participation um i yeah. i think that was a great response but boy the last two years don't boy they they, they feel strange it's a, like a different timeline we've been in i think
1: yeah well and he wasn't really asking for participation but, you know, unlike, unlike uh, Obama, you know, once Obama won, it was like the call for participation kind of disappeared. It's like, oh, we participate in my campaign. But, you know, once it came time to kind of try to save the economy and all, it was just let's bail out the, the traditional banks. And, you know, it, it wasn't like uh, uh, let's create favor banks and alternative currencies in your towns and let's teach people how to... He didn't do community organizing. He did something else. So then, when when Trump, even though Trump was kind of running on an authoritarian campaign, you know, if the the first day that he, uh, uh, right after he wins, he you know puts up this website saying, "Okay, I want people to help. You know, who wants to you know work in my administration?" And um, I was thinking, "Wow, you know, if he really did that, if it became participatory." Um, that could be a good thing. And maybe he was just using, you know, his kind of 30 percent core constituency in a kind of a dangerous gamble to uh, just to win the election. So I was trying to argue, look, let's let's uh, make a good faith effort, you know, <laughs> to 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 be nice to him or to 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 convert him to, you know, to sort of a, a, a civic understanding of things. So I um. <laughs> I filled out the thing on the website to be um, secretary of the treasury. I checked because he had like little bullet points that you could check what job you wanted, and I was like, "Okay, secretary of the treasury, I'll I'll take that one." Um, But they never, um, you know, they never called back.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well. well, uh, (laughs) So it's interesting in your book you talk about how the digital landscape that we inhabit. Moved us from uh you know into a realm where nine one one operators or air traffic controllers inhabit where you know they we 're just always on and um, it's interesting because that just reminded me of the the past two years where you know i think in in uh, visits past we 've talked about you know the news cycle and what it takes to keep information flowing through that you know you have this i think you called it a standing wave but uh, it's it's amazing to go from uh, just post-Trump feels like we've entered into like an entirely new media landscape where it is really changing. You know, it it can change every 20 minutes. And uh, it hasn't been a pleasant two years, I don't think.
1: No, I mean, you're right that that it feels really different. But this is what this is the world that he's lived in since you know since the 1980s you know he's been doing reality tv before there was reality tv you know, with his his affairs and his divorces and you know he's been playing that game for a long time and this is you know what we were talking about back when uh uh television became more about Jerry Springer than anything else you know and and news companies were having to uh really ape the the style and and news gathering behavior of the tabloids um it kind of you know it kind of began with that and for sure on top of that then the the digital media environment you know even exacerbates it even further so you end up with these um uh well the the biases of digital media ending up really ruling how we uh, how we interact and think about the world so if uh, digital technology is about, you know, uh, difference and polarity and yes or no or one or zero, you know, that it, it does tend to create a much starker uh, political landscape. And then you have social media platforms that are, you know, intentionally designed to make us into more extreme versions of of who we are than we really are, you know. If you have, you know, one uh, some some guy who has one concern about women or is slightly afraid of intimacy, all of a sudden, you know, becomes a GamerGate, you know, dark web, uh, uh you know, anti-feminist because he goes down he goes down that tunnel and the the YouTube videos he's watching become more extreme. The social media uh, feeds that he's uh in steer him towards more extreme uh, more extreme views. so you get that and you get that that sense of division and us and them and 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 building walls rather than taking down walls and trying to really define everything separately. And you have this other bias of of memory because all of digital media is really occurring in memory of one kind or another. So you have uh, you know people trying to escape from their past behaviors every, Photo that was taken to them at a frat party in high school now comes into the present the same way that your your friends from second grade show up on Facebook and it's a strange kind uh, sort of cognitive dissonance between me now and me then and it's led to a a political climate where people are thinking back to good old days whether it's progressives thinking back to the good old I guess Obama days although it wasn't really as progressive as, as advertised and the 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 right thinking back to um, You know, some kind of 1940s or 50s America, which was an America of FDR and the New Deal. You know, so it was a it was the back to the socialist America with an 80 percent top tax bracket. So they're not really being accurate in what it is
0: that they're thinking of as as the good old days either. Yeah, it's it seems like the one thing that everyone can agree on is that we're not going to I mean... (laughs) We're not gonna challenge capitalism as far as the the core operating system goes, it's it, I think it's it's the the social progressivity that people are really nostalgic about, nostalgia nostalgic about with Obama. But as far as like the current order, people are more able to imagine a, a, a world without humans than a world without capitalism. Well,
1: yeah, but that's part of what capitalism is for. (laughs) Capitalism (laughs) is it it tries to get humans out of the equation because humans are cost. Humans are, uh, uh, you know, whether it's as labor... Um, or as as poverty, you know, whatever humans are are the problem, particularly in in digital capitalism. You know, capitalism has always been abstract. You know, you had these three factors of production: you had land, which was real, that you're going to get the 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 ore out of that you need to grow your your crops. You had labor, who are the human beings who have to be paid and fed and kept healthy enough to work and then you had capital and that was the money that you'd put into the project you know the capital was always abstract you could just print more money or go to the king and he'll issue uh issue some money for your expedition or whatever you're doing but the land and the labor were somewhat fixed and people would complain you know people could have a a mutiny or a strike or you know it's just humans are are the the uh, uh, kind of the difficult part of the equation. And uh, industrialism throughout, really, from f- 14, 1500s right to today, you know, it was always about making humans uh, less central to the business's activity or making towns less central, making whatever, whatever uh, uh, was going to slow down your company less central. So you, we developed, you know, the assembly line, really not just to make... Um, uh, production faster, but to make labor less central to the equation. If you have an assembly line, you don't need a skilled craftsperson. You just need someone who can bang a nail and then move the piece on to the next person. So the, the process itself became the skill, the person who could devise the, the assembly line process, not the workers themselves. And now in a digital age, it's those same values, only they're, they're uh, rather than really being enforced through the law the way they were back in the day and through regulation, now they're being enforced through code. So we don't even see uh, uh, the way that we're being uh, uh, controlled or the way our value is being extracted. It's, it's embedded in code and we can't even <clears> – <throat> we're not even allowed to see the code. The code is
0: proprietary. It's in a black box. There's, there's kind of a trick going on here a little bit um and i wonder if if it isn't almost like like uh like on the surface there is there is like entertainment or something and that's what we see but then underneath is like this core ideology and that's really what you know is driving whatever the entertainment is and oftentimes people are not even aware of what it is that they're taking in Um, like it's, uh, some, it, it, it's somehow, whatever the thing is contributes to, uh, the core ideology that is, is, you know, it's, it's the operating system. People lack the awareness of the operating system.
1: Well, they generally don't see that. I mean, and we have lots of names for it. Sometimes we call it the political economy of media. You know, so, you know, the the stuff you see on television has more to do with what makes corporations money than what we would naturally um, be drawn to. But uh, but you're right that ideologies ended up end up kind of embedded in programming. So, you know, we watch American Idol, which is kind of a a lesson in fascism on a certain level, you know, on fascism that looks like democracy. So for the last 20 years, I guess, however long that show's been on, young people are being raised thinking of democracy as hearing somebody's song and seeing them on TV and who do you like the most and then dialing in a number for that one, you know, and uh, in some sense, you know, that's basically reality TV or a reality TV contest posing as democracy. So it's no wonder that we end up with real democracy looking like reality TV, you know? It's the, it's the, uh, and it's not like there's some guy in the head of a building saying, let's uh, uh, undermine democracy itself by creating a TV show that's a talent show. You know, it's not like the people... Uh, uh the producers of survivor are saying oh let's convey a libertarian winner takes all competitive economic ideology by creating a popular uh, uh reality show where people compete in this way and and kick each other off an island you know it's it's not uh it's not that conscious it's really much more uh systemic or institutional the way uh our shows reflect these ideologies
0: and then the ideologies reflect the shows. Well so I I kind of wonder if it if it isn't the core tenant it seems like and and I reread the google bus book again too is that there's this extractive quality to capitalism and I think when you talk about capitalism you're talking about this kind of chartered mon- monopoly structure that started uh in the middle ages. Mm-hmm. And so it's that extractive that's it's funny because when when I watch American Idol after the the big moment when everyone's teared up that's when I feel the dirtiest because I feel like they've manipulated our humanness to arrive at this emotional point that isn't real. Uh some of the people think I'm crazy in that respect. Like, well, you're not human. It's like, no, I don't know that this really is human because I feel like we've been coached to get here to the tears at the end of the show.
1: Right. Well, I mean, you could look at, uh, You could look at any Steven Spielberg movie the same way. You know, there's a a moment, and I guess I don't know, it was probably in college when that came out, when The Color Purple came out. And I'm watching, it's this movie with Whoopi Goldberg that Steven Spielberg directed, and it's a great novel and all. And I'm watching the way he's panning or cutting back and forth, you know, in this tense moment. And I just felt like, here's this filmmaker, you know, playing me. You know, there was that sense that I was the instrument. And he was trying to play my nervous system through these various shots. And um, and it was weird. Something activated in me. Some kind of defense mechanism of I don't want to let him do this to me. And uh, that's the sense that we all get, I think, now as we use the Internet. I think we're all becoming aware of how, you know, the algorithms from slot machines are put into our social media feeds to create addictive behaviors or the colors, the UX and UI are designed at, at you know, from graduates of, of Stanford University's Captology Lab. You know, that's where they came up with the streak feature on Snapchat and all these things that the designers later come to me so guilty and so, oh, I did this terrible thing and look at all this mental illness I created. I'm gonna try to donate money to like schools in Africa. Um, yeah, well, good luck. Um, you know, they they understand they've done they've done silly things. But yeah, we've moved into a world where we don't use technology. Our technology uses us. Our smartphones get smarter about us every time we swipe them, and we get dumber about them. And that's, you know, from your your opening reading from the book, that's the essential reversal I keep talking about. Human beings are no longer the figure. We are the ground. We are the medium rather than the message. And that's... um, a, a reversal that's not like some buddhist move into you know uh, uh uh some sort of wise passivity it's uh uh it's a kind of uh uh colonization really of human mind and attention by the same colonial powers that killed and 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 enslaved every other indigenous
0: species you know now they're they're turning it on ourselves well, could you explain? So, figure and ground is a concept that you use throughout the book to kind of show this this reversal or just this difference of uh, perspective. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, there was a, a Danish psychologist. I think it was in the in the. 70s it became kind of a really big deal who came up with this notion of figure and ground where uh, there's that sort of famous picture which you can see either as like two faces looking at each other or it could look like a phase or or a goblet and you know they're, they're sort of it was a psych test to see if people are looking for kind of the subject of something or if they move into the into the field into the 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 more the landscape you know, so and they did a lot of experiments with with Easterners and Westerners. And, you know, if you have a, a picture of a cow in a field, the Westerner always sees the cow and the Easterner always sees the field. So much so that the 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 Easterner might not even know what animal it was because they're seeing a um, they're seeing the landscape more than the the, the subject of it. Um, so, so, I mean, those judgments aside and the balance between the, the figure and ground aside, what happens is in, in, in the West a lot is we have these kind of profound reversals of figure and ground. So where education say might've started out as compensation for work. That was the idea anyway, that the coal miner could come home and, uh, uh, uh read a book after a hard day in the mines. Uh, he needed to be educated to do that or to to participate meaningfully in democracy. So the the education was, a, a form of compensation for all the work that he's doing, a way of having some dignity. Now we see education as an extension of work. It's job training. You go to college to get the skills to get a job. The presidents of colleges and principals of of high schools are meeting with the CEOs of companies to find out what do you need our students to do, and we'll train them. You know, as if. Uh, uh corporations are supposed to be able to to externalize the cost of, of employee training to the public school system. And it's it's dehumanizing because what we've done is taken an institution that was dedicated to human dignity and turned it back into an extension of, of, of labor of, of human exploitation. And that's a figure in a ground. So where the humans were the figure of education, they become the ground. Where humans were the figure in technology, that a personal computer was supposed to be personally empowering, uh, it's become instead a form
0: of, of uh, isolation and enslavement. Well, Speaking of the isolation, so this is an interesting thing you bring up in the book too. You, you, you note that for the most part, the people are always one media revolution behind the 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 folks in charge who actually control that new media revolution and so the interesting thing for me is this move from television and what it uh what kind of it's not ideology but what you know what the the, the message that's in that media was and then moving to the digital revolution and how um what it engendered. So it, it it seems like it's contradictive that moving to an all-connected world, uh, in theory, we should all be connected, but it really produced the opposite. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's the Internet story that I think most people kind of know by now,
0: that in the late 80s, early
1: 90s, um, the emergence of interactive media and networking seemed to augur a newly highly connected world where people would be able to engage with each other in a kind of a a rich intelligent way. And I think because going online was a specific action, you know, you you logged onto a computer and went onto the internet as a conscious choice, um, people tended to bring their best selves there. You know, it was a and that was a different uh, that was a different phenomenon. You know, you you took hours to craft a single paragraph that you would then upload into a Usenet group. Those were these kind of online bulletin boards, and you'd wait hours or days to see how people responded to what you did. And the internet was this place where people really sounded smarter than they did in real life. So much so that when there was a party of your group or a, a get together of some kind, sometimes you'd be afraid to go because people would see the real you, and that you're not as eloquent as you sound online. And then once we strapped the devices to ourselves and turned them into a 24-7 state of being, because, well, that's a whole lot easier to uh, 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 extract value from people when they're just walking around with these surveillance technologies on themselves, uh, it, it, it changed, and the Internet became a place where it was much less about connecting people to one another, because there's no way to make money off people actually just interacting with each other, um, and and get them to really react with their to 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 react as as mechanically and automatically as possible. The the platforms that we use are really designed to predict our behavior and to uh, make us behave in ways that are more consistent with those predictions. So they'll predict with you know eighty percent accuracy that there's some behavior that you're about to do and then they're going to do whatever they can to get you to do that to make sure you remain part of that 80%. You don't wander off into the 20% of weird people who do the unpredictable thing because the less predictable you are, the harder it is for them to make money from you in in the ways that they know how.
0: When you so the other interesting thing is the internet produced this culture of conspiracy. And so when you when you speak of Uh, they uh, it's it's the operating system it's not like some international i mean there is an international ruling elite but it isn't so nefarious as what is conjured up in the narratives on
1: well it depends i mean in some cases it's kind of uh it's kind of nasty you know so you look at a a kid like mark zuckerberg you know he drops out of college cuz he's got this idea for this network and admittedly it was a little frat boy in its in its original conception because he saw the facebook as a way for guys to really see pictures of girls and decide if they want to try to date them or not, um, you know, but at least it was social, right? At least it had some intent and, and uh, uh, with, with proper counseling and, and development, it could have been a, a way to actually try to help people connect. And it was kind of working, you know, right up until around, you know, the the, the third or fourth or fifth year maybe when, you know, Sheryl Sandberg comes aboard and all these investors put in all this money and Facebook had to somehow show not just a few billion dollars of profit, but hundreds of billions of dollars of profit in order to give the investors a hundred X or a thousand X return on their investment. And that's when they had to pivot the company intentionally away from let's just you know uh, uh, help people connect and share pictures and 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 talk with their grandmas who live in Florida, um, and maybe show them ads in return. And they they that they flipped that potentially sustainable model into one that they hoped would continue their hockey stick growth. You know because these companies need to grow. And that's when they became uh, so, so exploitative. That's when they started to employ algorithms to actually uh, modify human behavior because they needed a way to make more money than they had before. And uh, that was conscious. I mean, if you if you and eventually we will see all the transcripts of the meetings with, you know, Sandberg and others. Um, really pushing Zuckerberg, and I don't know that he's a total naif innocent, but certainly pushing him and the company to come up with uh, more profitable ways of uh, uh, working, you know, and that meant, you know, hurting
0: a lot of people. I think we spent a lot of time the last time you you visited on that subject. This idea of investment capital and how the goal isn't to be profitable, but to be extremely profitable. So turning your, you know, you want to, you know, get a tenfold return on your investment. And therefore, companies aren't in the business of like doing good for society. They need to do something that you can extract a lot of value from. And so it's interesting because I think uh, Rihanna just did a pivot. I think, you know, to to really catch on her brand she's she's created this makeup line and i think it you know it's like (laughs) i've been thinking about this how how is it how you know so like how do you reach more consumers within the market if you know you you're just one thing you really need to to spread out i guess
1: well, it depends. I mean, again, this is all this all goes back to the economic operating system underlying the digital operating system. You know, if we accept the rules of 13th century expansive central currency corporate capitalism as the only operating system that we can use, um, we're going to be in trouble because digital technology amplifies certain power law dynamics. That it's kind of like putting capitalism in a centrifuge and. All of the things that over time we've learned to use to kind of mitigate the effects of corporate capitalism on people and places, whether it's the Environmental Protection Agency or government regulation or even unions, um, all those things, the ability of communities to fight back or decide what businesses they want, where, they're, where, they're, uh, 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 where they live, um, all those things go away. And we end up in the nightmare that Adam Smith, one of the first kind of uh, uh, moral social philosopher economists, um, the nightmare that he was envisioning, where large corporations would be able to dominate and small businesses and local businesses would no longer be able to compete. And that's really because any company on the internet is no longer local, right? Once you're on the internet, you're sort of in this generic space, or you 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 where where scaling up seems to be the only possible alternative everyone has to become the global brand for this or that and there's not that many there's not room for that many global companies you know and not everyone should have to want to operate at that level even if you're a tweeter or a, a a blogger or a podcaster like you you know if you get your couple thousand people that's enough you don't need to be you know to have you know justin bieber size audience um, unless you're trying to make money doing it through google ads or something in which case yeah the 0.001 cent you're getting for each uh, each click um is not going to pay the bills unless you scale up and become a monster
0: Okay, so let's say about 10 years ago, I really was looking for a way to live in the world that caused the least amount of harm for the most amount of people. And so I was really, I was kind of in this searching kind of phase and considering different ideologies and different structures and things. But at the same time, I was really personalizing the failings of society uh, or just taking it on personally too. So like... uh, it's like my student loan debt i really felt like i i screwed up and the environment catastrophes this was you know somehow my fault um at this point in both your books you talk about renaissance in terms of uh like a metaphor of giving birth and and this is kind of like your your hopefulness in this respect is that when when you look at um, like birth as a process and you don't understand it you you might not realize that it's it's beautiful because you don't know what what's happening
1: right I mean I'm looking for a way and for for examples of things looking really really bad looks like this is the end but understanding that it's something else and I remember that um, it was Terence McKenna this psychedelics Philosopher um, and and wonderful writer. He once talked about uh, you know that if if you came upon a, a woman giving birth and had no idea about how babies were born, you would think that something awful was going on. Right there's blood and screaming and contractions, and you'd think this person is dying. But it's actually rebirthing. It's birthing a new a new human. And if we look at this moment, you know, not as some revolution. If it's a revolution, it was failed. There was no di- digital revolution. There was this kind of giant reactionary push from big business to prevent the Internet from actually being disruptive in any real way. You know, all it, all it you know, promoted was, was different uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley uh, uh, IPOs. But if rather than trying to see it as a revolution... If we looked at it as a renaissance, it starts to make sense that the the things that happened in the last great renaissance in the 1300s that those institutions are finally no longer working and we need another rebirth. And instead of doing what we did then, which was rebirthing the values of, of ancient Greece and Rome, of centrality and, and control, you know, we, we rebirth the things that got repressed in the last Renaissance, whether it was women or peer-to-peer culture or crafts or uh, uh, bottom-up economic value creation, um, the city... You know, in the Renaissance, the city-state gave way to the nation-state, and now we see nation-states are utterly, you know, uh, incapable of, of dealing, or certainly America, dealing with climate change, but our cities are picking up the slack. The cities are where we're starting to see genuine progressive um, activity and new ideas, and many cities are staying, you know, a Paris Accord uh, climate uh, uh, compliant, or better, you know, when the nations are are failing. So uh, if we looked at this moment as a renaissance, then we think, well, well, sure, there's going to be this last gasp of nation states against the push. They're going to start putting up walls to define their boundaries because uh, nobody's recognizing them anymore because they're not real. They never were. Nation states were imaginary constructs. You know, they were invented by monarchs looking to, uh, really quell the political power of the cities, you know, which dad weren't recognizing the monarchs. So they came up with these artificial boundaries. You're not Venetian; you're Italian. Um, that's really the way it worked. And those guys on the other side—they're the enemy, and we're going to go beat them up. They're not even human. They're less than human. They're another tribe. Um, and that's that's the uh, uh, the way of thinking and 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 acting. That's that's just. Uh, inconsistent with a, a well it's inconsistent with human sustainability it's inconsistent with you know anything but extinction
0: you're definitely a student of history and it's it and i it
1: helps in moments like this when people believe that, that they're coming up against a an essential discontinuity or the very end of of reality itself and to say, no, there's something called history and it's, it's a little different. And,
0: and this is how it works. Does every generation think that, you know, (laughs) that they've reached the end of history, you know, the things are so bad that everything needs to be reset and there's no way out. Or is it just these key moments in history where things get so bad? You know, I'm thinking of like, like world war one was just brutal um but there's there's life on the other side i'm just wondering you're you're hopeful uh do you think we've reached like is it really end game or is it just a moment that will will pass through and that there is there's hope out there well you're kind of asking in a
1: certain way is it is the threat existential to the species or does it just mean maybe half to three quarters of human beings dying? Right. <laughs> right. Does it just mean five or six billion deaths? Because um, we'd still end up with a couple of billion, you know. So as I see it, um, the, the, the some humans will remain no ma almost no matter what
0: but is it that bleak i mean so like that's what reality says is that things are really bleak and the system is not going to change the system does have to be dismantled and even then you know how bleak will it be post-capitalism oh
1: we we still have the ability to mitigate the effect so only millions die we really do um I mean, we've done some really bad things. We're already, you know, one and a half degrees above where we should be. And we have half a degree left before catastrophic uh, stuff starts to happen. Um, but there still are going to be, even if we do the uh, uh, Green New Deal, which I'm really excited about, you know, really come up with a policy for uh, uh, becoming green a across the board and that also involves human rights and ending slavery and all these other things that contribute to to climate change um if we did a new a, a, a green new deal and elected people who signed on to that platform or that policy and started to worry less about them personally and more about what policies they're going to actually implement um we could uh you know we could contend with a lot more and figure out or what are we going to do with the people in low-lying regions from all these nations all over the place who are going to be below water. Where are we going to move those refugees and all? And you can look at the current refugee crises and people building walls against refugees as really, I mean, fairly conscious preparation for the the inhumanity ahead. You know, if we decide to to lock out those who are going to be covered, you know, those who are not, uh, are not in, in, uh, survivable regions. Um, that's one way, but I think that there, there still is, is ample time to, uh, have an all hands on deck moment. You know, if in the next year or two, you know, people decided, no, this really does change everything. We really do need to, to, to make this happen. Then, uh, uh, then it's not, but but this is a little different. I mean, the I know in when before Europe really found America, and they believed that they had found a new limitless source of natural resources. Europe was in trouble. They had chopped down their trees. They were actually in a in a a, a serious resource situation when they came to America and saw forests. They're like, oh my gosh, there haven't been forests like this in a couple of hundred years. You know, they they had taking everything down they took all the trees off the alps and and wherever so um we've been there before but um we had more planet uh before so now um the the sort of the the limitlessness of the human atmosphere and biosphere has been uh uh well the limits have been reached And uh, so we do have to, we have to kind of flip our behavior in another way. And I don't think it's a Monsanto miracle that, that saves us at this point. I do think it's just, you know, between the division of wealth and the exploitation of people and the increase in slavery and all that, it's time to start, I wouldn't say dismantling things, but just moving in a different direction. Dismantling frightens people, you know? So you just transition, you move forward, you, you... Uh, and you, you stop thinking that you can do... That's such an American thing. Oh, let's dismantle it and build another one. You know, you can't. You can't clear-cut reality to build another one. But you can transition from this reality to uh, 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 one that, that kind of retrieves more essential human values. Well, that was 42
0: Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us.
1: Cool. I Why did you pick 42? I guess I asked this before, but
0: I forgot. It's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Is it? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Says Douglas Adams. Right. But I think he got that concept from the Egyptians. So. Oh, really? Or the Rosicrucians? Maybe. Well, it's all there. It's all there. Yeah. You've been oh. listening to Douglas Rushkoff on 42 Minutes, production of Sickbook Radio on the sickbook.com Check out his website. And I, I think, is it Rushkoff.com?
1: Yes. Or is it Doug? Anything. Rushkoff.com.
0: TeamHuman.fm. Excellent. For more information about the Syncbook, our guests check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit uh, iTunes. Be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the Syncbook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. If compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks so much. And I am here, and find the others. Was it a dream,
2: under the holy cross, in the valley below? A mother and child, emergency, behind a yellow curtain, on the second floor. All the guardian angels, at the door. The long white coats in the stereoscopes in the middle of love on the little white dove on the heroin. My eyes fell to the floor